Life is too short for a man to hold bitterness in his heart. These are the words of Marshall Walter Taylor, better known as Major Taylor. Major Taylor was an African-American professional cyclist and one of the greatest American athletes of all time. Not only was he part of an evolving new sport in the late 1800s and early 20th century, Throughout his career, he challenged the racial prejudice he encountered on and off the track, becoming a pioneering role model for other athletes facing discrimination. To really set the scene for his era and the significant role he played at this time, I thought it'd be interesting and helpful to get a brief history about bikes before the bicycles we know today. Imagine a bike without pedals, really. In 1817, a German inventor, Karl von Drace, developed the Swift Walker, or Dandy Horse. The rider would sit on top of this apparatus and walk, letting their feet only leave the ground during descents. Those silly Swift Walkers didn't last long, though. New York City banned them from public places and walkways in 1827. The bicycle velocipedes we know and love today, with pedals, showed up around the mid-1800s with some disputes over who engineered this improvement, but my research pointed to the French Michaud Company. They were also known as bone shakers because of the wooden tires, you can imagine. It would take a while longer to develop the pneumatic tire in 1888 to absorb rough vibration. As the invention of the bicycle was rolling out, Major Taylor was just a young boy rolling along too. Marshall Walter Taylor. Born November 26th, 1878, into poverty. Was the son of Gilbert Taylor, a Civil War veteran on the Union side, and Sophronia Kelter Taylor. His parents migrated from Louisville, Kentucky, and settled in a rural area on the western edge of Indianapolis, Indiana, called Bucktown. Taylor was one of the eight children of the family that included five girls and three boys. Around 1887, his father began working in Indianapolis as a coachman for a wealthy white family, the Southards. Albert Burley Southard was superintendent of the Indianapolis, Peru, and Chicago Railroad. He and his wife, Laura, had a son, Daniel, the same age as Taylor. When Taylor accompanied his father to work, he and Daniel became quick friends, so close, in fact, that the Southards invited him to live with them. So. From the age of eight until he was about 12, Taylor actually lived with the family and along with Daniel was tutored at their home. Taylor's living arrangement with the Southards provided him with more advantages and privileges than his parents could provide, including his first bicycle. But then it all ended abruptly when the Southards moved to Chicago in 1891. Although they invited him to come live with them there, Taylor's mother could not bear the idea of parting with him. He'd write in his autobiography, quote, I was dropped from the happy life of a millionaire kid to that of a common errand boy, all within a few weeks, end quote. But he still had the bike given to him, and by early 1892, he'd become such an expert trick rider that an Indianapolis bicycle shop owner hired Taylor to perform stunts in front of a shop. Taylor earned $6 a week for cleaning the shop and performing stunts, plus a free bicycle worth $35. It's likely Taylor received his nickname, Major, 
because he performed the cycling stunts wearing a military uniform. It was around this time too, as a young teen, that he won his first amateur bike. After that shop, he took a job as a head trainer for another shop in Indy, teaching local residents how to ride. It was there where he got to know Louis D. Birdie Munger, a former high-wheel bicycle racer who owned the Munger Cycle Manufacturing Company. With a shared interest in bicycle racing, the two became friends, and Birdie hired the teenage tailor to work odd jobs that included sending them to high schools and colleges in the area to train cyclists and promote Munger's line of racing bicycles. Birdie had made up his mind to make Taylor a champion and coached him to become a racer, but not without peril. Taylor encountered racial prejudice throughout these amateur racing events. Even local track owners, who feared that white cyclists wouldn't compete if Taylor was present, banned him from their tracks. In 1893, for example, after 15-year-old Taylor beat a one-mile amateur track record, he was hooted and then barred from the track. Unable to join the local all-white zigzag cycling club, he joined the black cyclist group, the Seesaw Cycling Club. He continued finding opportunities in Indianapolis to race and won his first significant cycling competition on June 30, 1895, the only rider to finish a grueling 75-mile road race. Then, in August of 1896, Taylor unofficially broke a world track record in Indianapolis. Unofficial because he was not yet considered professional. And even so, his feet offended angry whites, and he was banned from the Indy track. In the fall of 1895, when Bertie moved east to establish the Wooster Cycling Manufacturing Company in Wooster, Massachusetts, Taylor followed him. At that time, it was the center of the U.S. bicycle industry, with a dozen factories and twice as many bicycle shops. The state of Massachusetts was also a more racially tolerant area in the country at the time. Bertie had a business partner. They opened two factories. Taylor worked as a bicycle mechanic and messenger between the two while he took advantage of cycling opportunities and the world-class cycling venues around the area. He joined a cycling club and trained at the YMCA there in Worcester. Taylor turned professional in 1896 at the age of 18 and soon emerged as the most formidable racer in America. His first professional race took place in front of nearly 6,000 spectators on December 5, 1896. A six-day race. Six-day cycling is a thing. It's a track cycling event that competes over six days on indoor tracks known as velodromes. These race events started in Britain and spread to many regions of the world. Originally, individuals competed alone, the winner being the individual who completed the most laps, with only short breaks for rest. Whoever cycled the most miles over the course of the contest would be declared the winner. As the fascination with six-day races spread, their appeal to base instincts attracted large crowds. The more spectators who paid at the gate, the bigger the purse prize, which provided riders with the incentive to stay awake or be kept awake in order to ride the greatest distance. During these long, grueling races, riders suffered delusions and hallucinations caused by exhaustion and lack of sleep. Taylor finished eighth out of two dozen competitors, covering 1,723 miles, the distance from New York to Houston. As a professional racer, 
Taylor continued to experience racial prejudice. In November and December of 1897, when the professional racing circuit extended to the segregated South, local race promoters refused to let Taylor compete because he was black. Once, while racing in Savannah, Georgia, in the winter of 1898, he received a written threat saying, clear out if you value your life. But that didn't stop Taylor. This was also the peak of his career. In 1898, he earned seven world records. The quarter mile, one-third mile, half mile, two-thirds mile, three-quarters mile, one mile, and two-mile distances. His one-mile standing start was a world record of one minute, 41 seconds, and stood for 28 years. But even with these exciting achievements, grief struck. He was in Massachusetts when his mother died. Taylor was devoted to her and his Baptist faith. It was reported that Taylor took a Bible with him wherever he traveled and began each race with a silent prayer. For most of his professional career, he even refused to compete on Sundays for religious reasons. He would continue to garner wins in 1899. On August 10th, Taylor won the one-mile sprint event at the prestigious World Track Championships to become the first African-American and the second black athlete, after Canadian boxer George Dixon, to win a world championship in any sport. And for decades, he was the only black athlete to be a world champion in cycling. A few months later, on November 15th, he brought the one-mile record down to one minute, 19 seconds. Then in September of 1900, after being previously banned by racism, Taylor finally got to complete the National Championship Series and become an American Sprint Champion. With that achievement, he was ready to take on the world. Following his record-setting successes in the U.S. and Canada, Taylor agreed to a European tour which he had long resisted because of his Baptist beliefs precluding him from racing on Sundays. However, I read somewhere that many promoters shifted events from Sundays to French national holidays to accommodate the American. And in 1901, Taylor made his first trip to Europe. Europeans loved him. In 1901, he won 18 of the 24 races he entered and beat every European champion. In 1902, he entered 57 races and won 40 of them, defeating the champions of Germany, England, and France. Then, in 1902, he married Daisy Victoria Morris from Connecticut. Tailored met her around 1900, when she was living in Worcester with her aunt and uncle. After getting hitched, he continued racing all over Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and the United States. With admiring crowds around the globe, Taylor earned as much as $35,000 annually. That would amount to over a million today. He and his wife traveled first class on great steamships, stayed in elegant hotels, and dined at the world's finest restaurants. In an era when baseball, prize fighting, and bicycle racing vied for America's attention, Taylor dominated the world's sports pages. While in Australia in 1904, Taylor and his wife had their only child, a daughter named Rita Sidney, the namesake of her birthplace, on May 11th. When they weren't traveling, they lived in a large home on Hobson Avenue in Worcester. Not long after her birth, Taylor took a two-and-a-half-year hiatus from cycling between 1904 and 1906. 
only to return in 1907, where he would set two world records in Paris for the half-mile standing start at just over 42 seconds and the quarter-mile standing start at 25 seconds. That is some serious sprinting power. With wins in Paris, he returned to Europe's racing season in 1908 and 1909, breaking his long-standing decision to avoid Sunday races. Taylor's last professional race took place on October 10, 1909, in Rhone, France, in a match against French world champion Charles Dupré, which he won. With the advent of the automobile, interest in cycling began to wane, and Taylor, feeling the effects of age on his legs, retired in 1910 at the age of 32. As well as the physical strain, mental strain caused by the racial prejudice he experienced on and off the track also affected his decision to retire. As a quick aside, in 1917, he would compete in one last race, an old-timers race among former professional racers in New Jersey, and win that too. So, after retiring from competition in 1910, Despite not having a high school diploma, Taylor applied to Worcester Polytechnic Institute to study engineering. Unfortunately, he was denied admission, and as a result, took up various business ventures. At the time of his retirement, his estimated net worth was 75000 to 100000 That's over $2 million to today's standard of inflation. Despite the obstacles, he'd become one of the wealthiest athletes, black or white, of his time. But that wouldn't help him. Over the next two decades, failed investments and illnesses would deplete his fortune. In one venture, he lost $15,000 in an unsuccessful patented automobile will. Then there was the financial failure of his 1928 memoir. Nearly 20 years after his retirement, Taylor wrote and self-published his autobiography, titled The Fastest Bicycle Rider in the World, the story of a colored boy's indomitable courage and success against great odds. According to his book, Taylor was upbeat about his retirement. Quote, I felt I'd had my day, and a wonderful day it was, too. End quote. Taylor also claimed he'd had no regrets and, quote, no animosity toward any man. I always played the game fairly and tried my hardest, although I was not always given a square deal or anything like it. End quote. After six years of writing his autobiography, he spent the last years of his life selling the book door-to-door -door in Chicago. This, and a string of bad speculations coupled with the Wall Street crash in 1929, wiped out all of his earnings. Their family home in Worcester and most of the family's personal property were sold to pay off debts. Perhaps, as a result, his marriage crumbled, and he became sickly. Daisy left him in 1930 and moved to New York City. He never saw his wife or daughter again. Little is known of Taylor's life after the failure of his marriage and his move to Chicago around 1930. He spent the final two years of his life in poverty, residing at the YMCA Hotel in Chicago's Bronzeville neighborhood. In March 1932, Taylor suffered a heart attack. After an unsuccessful heart operation, he was moved to Cook County Hospital's charity ward, where he died on June 21st at age 53. His wife and daughter didn't immediately learn of his death, and his body remained unclaimed in a morgue, only to be buried in a pauper's grave at Mount Glenwood Cemetery in Chicago. 
15 years would pass. Then, in 1948, a group of former professional bicycle racers used funds donated by Frank W. Schwinn, owner of the Schwinn Bicycle Company, to organize the exhumation and reburial of Taylor's remains in a more prominent location at the cemetery. The plaque at the grave reads today, world's champion bicycle racer who came up the hard way without hatred in his heart, an honest, courageous, and God-fearing, clean-living, gentlemanly athlete, a credit to his race, who always gave out his best, gone but not forgotten. In the early years of his professional racing career, Taylor's reputation sparked praise and more than human nicknames, such as Wooster Whirlwind and the Black Cyclone, the Ebony Flyer and the Black Zimmerman. One of his fans was President Theodore Roosevelt, who kept track of Taylor throughout his 17-year racing career. Even when many of Taylor's accomplishments were somewhat diminished due to how conflicting cycling governing bodies scored races and often wouldn't even recognize one another, his record-setting times were impossible to dismiss. No other rider had matched the range and variety of his winning performances, and this made him an international celebrity. He was indeed a trailblazing black athlete who pioneered the way for many future athletes. In the United States, Taylor faced constant racial harassment, intimidation, and discrimination. He was often prohibited from racing on American tracks. In cities where he was allowed to race, he had difficulty finding accommodations. Taylor endured racist cycling organizations, his rivals' physical assaults, and self-serving promoters. In his autobiography, he recalled that ice water had been thrown at him during races, and nails were scattered in front of his wheels. He further described that he'd been elbowed and pocketed or boxed in by other riders to prevent him from sprinting to the front of the pack, a tactic at which he was so successful. One attack was publicized at the end of a one-miler in Massachusetts. W.E. Backer, who was upset at finishing behind Taylor, rode up behind him afterward and pulled him to the ground. The New Yorker reported the following. Becker choked him into a state of insensibility, and the police were obliged to interfere. It was fully 15 minutes before Taylor recovered consciousness, and the crowd was very threatening toward Becker. Becker was fined $50 for the assault. Taylor explained that he included details of these incidences in his autobiography to serve as an inspiration for other African-American athletes trying to overcome racial prejudice and discriminatory treatment in sports. Cycling historian and writer Peter Nye wrote, As an athlete, Taylor had a gunpowder sprint, fast and powerful, one that transformed races within sight of the finish line and delighted audiences on three continents. As a person, he had a jaunty personality, which kept him going despite racial adversity in his youth. There were no team tactics in his era, but white riders would conspire to box him in against the inside rail to permit someone else to pass on the outside. His sprint was so sharp that often he could drop behind, swing outside, and overtake everyone. Taylor's legacy remained largely unknown until the 1980s, when the Major Taylor Velodrome in Indianapolis opened for the city's hosting of the U.S. Olympic Festival in 82. And in 1989, Taylor was posthumously inducted into the U.S. Bicycling Hall of Fame. Several cycling clubs, trails, and events in the U.S. have been named in his honor 
including tributes of memorials and historic markers in Worcester, Indianapolis, and at his gravesite in Chicago. He's also been memorialized in film, music, and fashion. His daughter, Rita Sidney, graduated from the Sargent School of Physical Culture in Boston in 1925 and the University of Chicago in 1936. She taught physical education at Virginia State University and in 1984 donated an extensive scrapbook collection on her father to the University of Pittsburgh archives. She died in 2005 at age 101. I bet her dad would have been proud. And that's it. The remarkable life of Marshall Walter Major Taylor. My heart hurts when I think of the quiet and abandoned way he slipped away. And no honorification can compensate. But through stories, we experience life. And through stories, we remember. And through stories, we connect. I hope you experienced, remembered, and connected to something while listening to Taylor's story. In some way, felt, admired, or appreciated. Maybe even some kind of perspective shift. I love sharing these stories through Beautiful Gray Sponge. It's what I love to do. And I hope you get some intrinsic value, too. If you'd like to support the research, writing, recording, and producing efforts I invest into each episode, please visit my website. You can now go to beautifulgraysponge.com, gray with an A, the American way, to learn more. I also have a Venmo handle at Beautiful Gray Sponge. No amount is too small. And more than that, please keep sharing and tuning in. For now, that's it. And as always, thank you for listening.